Welcome to Secrets of Being an Artist, a podcast that delves into the professional lives of young creatives from Hobson's Bay. My name is Laura Lethleen, and over the series, I'll be asking my guests how they created and sustained their artistic professions and what lessons they've learned along the way. It was about, you know, realizing what's possible. And I hope that if there's any takeaway from any younger people listening to this is that, you know, art is possible, like, and, and there are ways to get in and it is not as uh, inaccessible as you think. This is episode one of four, and my guest is award-winning filmmaker, Michael Shanks. So let's begin. So you came from New Zealand with your family when you were around 11 years old, and you moved into Hobson's Bay. Yeah, absolutely. To me, Hobson's Bay is inextricably linked to my uh, artistic career. I, I've since become a full-time artist and have worked as such uh, since actually right before leaving high school. And I come from a fastidiously uh, unartistic family, you might say. Um, and I, when I traveled to Hobson's Bay, I think, you know, my parents were very, uh, uh, you know, had careers and kind of, you know, like corporate careers and, uh, more uh, of the uh, the maths and science and analytical side of the world. Yeah. And the education that I had in, a, in New Zealand was uh, private school. And it was very like the, the art that you could do was like you would opt in to learn a classical instrument. And that was the art at that school. It was very formal. And then uh, even in the six months that I, I came here in my final six months of primary school. And in those six months, my uh, homeroom teacher, Fred Van Someren, would sit at the front of the class just noodling on an acoustic guitar singing songs and telling us stories about his life and and already this like sense of the the art of the of the people was infecting my soul from this uh from this uh, area so we did theater and stuff at school but at the end of year mm-hmm. 12 you created a pilot episode for an online magazine which was kind of like a um competition and you won the competition and then so they paid you to make the rest of the season um, and that was called Doomsday Arcade. Do you want to like talk a little bit about yeah, what that a- is? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would implore people to definitely not look that up. It's 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 you know something I've I've never rewatched. But as Laura said, like uh, we were sort of theater kids that you know high school in in Hobson's Bay, William, Williamstown High School was my way kind of into realizing like oh people can like act and have fun and like play in bands and it really just like opened my mind and blew my mind because I'd come from this very like conservative school and and this was a. Uh, a really uh, a really nurturing and defining moment in my life and and kind of at the same time I was you know going on like video game websites uh, because you know I was, I was a cool kid and there was a, an online video game magazine called the escapist magazine uh, based in the states and they started advertising like hey we're having a film festival make a little film for us and uh, and the winner you know will, will win this prize and I thought I reckon I could do that I've been doing theater I, I've been kind of performing I think I'm kind of funny I've been kind of directing a bit of uh, of some of the theater that we've been doing in school yeah why not I'll do it and uh, yeah, so I did that, got some friends together, you know, uh, had learned and started to teach myself to do like editing and visual effects at home based on like free YouTube tutorials. And uh, and from that made this little short film and, and it won the competition, which, as you said, uh, got me a contract straight out of high school making uh, a fortnightly kind of action comedy series for uh, this American website. And so, yeah, I then spent about a year and a half. Uh, making you know a 25 part action comedy series for this website yeah and the expectations around that were pretty high right that wasn't it writing producing directing yeah not I you know I did I didn't the series actually kind of had an arc but I I didn't plan it out like I would spend two or three days frantically figuring out what the script was going to be and then I had you know 10 or 11 days left to uh, convince people to come and act in it shoot it 
edit it, do the VFX, you know, do the music, do the sound. And then, you know, I'd, I'd be working up until, you know, the, the moment it needed to be released. Like on, and usually I, I seem to recall having lots of sleepless nights towards the end of that process, but I loved it because I was, you know, I was so young and I was so thirsty for it. And I, and it was, you know, I, I, the idea of being a filmmaker and having mm. people see my stuff was a dream that I didn't even dare have six months before I got this job because it just seemed so big. It just seemed so, but it, and also it, you had complete creative control over it. Like really they were just kind of paying you to kind of do everything that you wanted to do, which must've given you the confidence to, yeah, be kind of a, like the one man band that you yeah, now turned yeah. yourself into. And that into. was certainly uh, freeing, but I also, th- well, no, it was definitely great because it allowed me to try things and fail because, you know, at the end of the day it was, it was a little web series and, and people were watching it and there were fans of it, but yeah, there wasn't a lot at stake from from the Escapist magazine's point of view, which is yeah, the website that it was hosted on. Um, and yeah, it, it definitely set a precedent for moving ahead, like where my work has always been like punching above the budget that we have afforded to it. Uh, usually I'm wearing lots of hats on on, a, on the job. I mean, you know, to clarify, I now work as a writer-director. And a hat still, model. And a hat model, which is why they call me Mikey Three Hats, because it's a <laughs> triple hat or nothing. But um, yeah, so so now I'm working as a writer director, but I also still, you know, do my own visual effects, do my own scores, uh, you know, most of the time edit my own work, and you know, do lots of roles like that. And that that's a that's a great thing because I love doing that, and it means that uh, on lower budget jobs that I am heralding, that I'm kind of you know that I've started, that I've written, I've conceived of, I can minimize the budget because well, I'll wear all those hats myself. Therefore, you know, that we don't have to pay an editor, we don't have to pay a composer, we don't have to pay a VFX person because I'll do all of that work. Um, but I do want to move on to post-Doomsday because Doomsday kind of took you maybe to being like 18, 19. Yeah, I was 19 when I finished, finished that show. Probably finished around 19. After you did Doomsday, you then started making these YouTube sketches and they were also like very comedic, very punching above their weight in terms of their visual effects. And, but, and also often parodying video games. So they were often linked to video games. And therefore the in-joke was always, well, if you play the video game, then you'll get the joke and you'll find this hilarious. I think YouTube started in 2005. Mm. So by, you know, by the end of high school, it had only been around for six years. And so you jumping on and starting to produce content for it it was almost like you were a part of the audience. Like the people getting onto YouTube at that time were gamers and people who were already quite familiar with the internet and really inter- and early adopters of I don't know, internet platforms. You grew your audience as YouTube grew. You knew your audience really well. And I kind of wanted to talk about that because there was something really smart in the content speaking to the audience. And I wonder if that was at all intentional or did you just want to make you know, videos about video games. Uh, everybody's fantasy. Uh, yeah, you, you, you kind of make it sound like it was smarter than it was when really it was it was quite fortunate. Um, but no, the, the way that it kind of worked was, yeah, I, I finished the Doomsday thing. It was a huge amount of work and I kind of took a little bit of a break. And then um, I was kind of like, oh, now what? I kind of want to do filmmaking stuff, but I literally know nobody in the industry <laughs> because I've done it all <laughs> with my friends uh, in Hobson's Bay. Uh, and... And, uh, and I just, I just made a sketch once, you know, and I I wasn't really linked to anything. I didn't have any social media platforms to promote it, but I just, I had an idea of like, oh, that'd be a funny sketch. And and I'm I'm just going to do it. It was based on a kind of like a Skyrim meme that was going kind of off at the time. I was a big kind of Redditor. Like I never posted, but I was reading lots of, you know, I was, I was, I was an internet guy, you know, consuming meme culture and that sort of stuff. And I just made this little Skyrim meme 
and uh, put it on YouTube. Didn't really have any thoughts about it. And then I think I went out that night. I came back and it was the, the top thing on Reddit. And I, it had had two to three million views kind of overnight. And I suddenly thought like, oh, cool. Like this is a this is a thing I can do. Uh, there was no plan. It was just it was just a little something. And then I was fortunate enough with the second thing I put on that YouTube chain, channel. I did did the same thing. And uh, that kind of started a, you know, sort of what I was doing on, on YouTube whereby uh, I was making comedy content and I, I kind of sort of continue to do so. But the way I've, I've been, I've spoken at a lot of like uh, talks on behalf of YouTube and therefore been there where much more qualified people are speaking about like, you know, how to be successful on YouTube, da, 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 da. And people talk about uh, there should be regularity of content. You should engage with your fans and you should, you know, be putting stuff out like as often as you can. These are all great rules for growing an online audience that I completely ignored. I uh, will make something and then I will go away and not make something until I really think of something that excites me again. Like I, I've, I never possibly, you know, for, for bad, maybe like a bad thing. Like, like I think if I had continued, you know, doing regular work, I think the YouTube channel that I have could have been like a massive YouTube channel. Uh, I kind of don't doubt that at all, but I would have been miserable because I never wanted to do that because I, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I never wanted to be a YouTuber. And I don't say that with a degree of elitism, but you know, it, for me, everything that I've done has always hopefully been a stepping stone towards making what I loved as kids, which was, you know, movies and uh, longer form content and, Whilst I am so grateful every time I make I, the opportunity to make a little sketch, uh, if you've seen them, you'd note that they are, as much as they are like maybe like a sketch about a video game or a sketch about this, it's actually me trying on different like cinematic genres. Like I'm trying out different shots and different kind of editing styles and different, uh, you know, lighting and, and that sort of way. It's my way of kind of exploring and feeling my way throughout uh, all the movies I love whilst, you know, uh, on, on a content where I feel or at least felt a bit more qualified to uh, speak, which was kind of, you know, the video game world. Where does the money come in? Like, you know, you've got like millions and millions and millions of views on your YouTube channel. Is there a, a world in which you could be making mm-hmm. money simply off that? Uh, as it stands now, absolutely not. But again, because I do already have a subscriber base uh, and I do have people that watch my stuff, if I wanted to do that, I would start figuring out, okay, what's like, what's almost like the podcast equivalent of a YouTube show that I could make regularly, you know, every week and put out. And, and, and because there's already like, that's how YouTube channels make a lot of money. If you look at, you know, the biggest YouTube channels, it's, they're streaming themselves, playing video games. They're, you know, uh, talking for an hour and a half about a TV show, you know, that kind mm, of content. Mm. So we left you at making video game parodies for YouTube and then you made your first short film in 2013. And I know that it was in 2013 because that's when I was trying to get you to be in my play that I, <laughs> that I wrote for the Fringe Festival. And you'd said yes, and you were one of the main characters. And suddenly you kept talking about this short film that you were going to make. And yeah, of course, it was like impossibly hard. It was set in space. It was going to be this whole set and everything. And I was just freaking out because I thought you were going to like quit my play. And I was freaking out too because I was like, Laura wants me to do a stupid play. I'm trying to make a space thing. <laughs> but it turned out that Por que no les dos, you can do both. Yeah. So uh, so you made Time Trap, the short film in 2013. Well, maybe it started in 2013, ended up being released 2014, maybe? Yeah. It was re- the thing with short films for anybody not in the know is, is you, you make a short film and then the hope is to get into festivals. And festivals are staggered all across the world, all across the year. But festivals are pretty unlikely to take your film as part of its, uh, part of its. I want to say menu, that's wrong. Um, you know, as part of the <laughs> festival, uh, 
if it's online, because they, they, they have this idea that, you know, if people can watch this for free, they're not going to come and, you know, at their homes, they're not going to come and watch the festival. I don't know if that, you know, still tracks in this world. But uh, so, you know, you finish the film and then unfortunately you kind of can't sh- release it for a year and a half or, or whatever as you, as you, you know, kind of uh, let it go through the festival circuit. So, so yeah, I would have made it in... In 2013, if that's when uh, the the seminal play by Laura Lethleen, Plastic Pacific, was put on in the Hobson's Bay sum station. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it probably wasn't released till 2014 and 2015. I mean, I can actually talk about the release of that because I think the release of that film was a really uh, core part of my kind of career story. Yeah, and I do want to ask you about that. But also, I just want to prompt that by asking you... Why didn't you just release it on your YouTube channel? You know, I made this short. It was a huge amount of work. Like, it was it was easily the, the biggest thing I'd ever made, and I thought the best. Uh, and I was really nervous about releasing it because it was been so much work that had been put into it. You know, not just by me as well. Like, you know, I want to shout out that there were, you know, other, other, other you know, the, my first kind of industry connections, you know, came to work on this piece. And... Uh, and I, I didn't know, like, God, there's so, so much time and effort went into this. The idea of just throwing it out on YouTube and nobody seeing it kind of... I was really worried that was going to be the case. So I had, I didn't really know what I was going to do to release it. And then um, an idea struck me for a, for a sketch, you know, like I'd done on the YouTube stuff of, of the past of a, a sketch that was really timely. And I thought it was really funny. I thought, oh, I have to do this. And it was, uh, it was this, uh, the, the first of the new Star Wars films was coming out and the first uh, trailer for it had dropped and, you know, it kind of set the internet ablaze and it set me ablaze because I'm a big, you know, Star Wars nerd. And I watched it and I loved it. And it was, you know, kind of the most talked about thing on the internet, you know, for, for a moment. But it's like the first time I watched it, I just had this like idea of, oh, I, I think that'd be, it'd be really funny if somebody were to re-edit this trailer. And I'm not going to explain the joke because it's boring, but it's, you know, it was, it was a really kind of, you know, nerdy Star Wars joke that I thought was like, oh, if somebody else did that, that'd be a great idea. And then I just thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll just do it. And, and my girlfriend was coming over to pick me up to go on a date and I called her and she was actually out the front of my house. And I said, "Yeah, sorry, I, I gotta, I can't go tonight. I gotta make this the Star Wars parody <laughs> video," and uh, and so she was like, "Yeah, okay, fine." And she's still with you today. And <laughs> she's still with me today. I don't know why. And uh, yeah, and and so I spent, so I quickly kind of made this like edit of this trailer with all these VFX and the and uh, and I got it out within I think twenty four hours of the original trailer coming out, and it just like exploded, like it was. Yeah, it was like it was like a decent joke. It was a clever idea, but it was so timely. Like already the world was pointing, like looking at the Star Wars trailer, like analyzing it. And then I think a lot of people were hoping to do kind of remixing and jokes and stuff. And then I kind of threw this one out that I think was maybe the best joke, you know, within the first 24 hours. And it was kind of, you know, probably surprisingly well made because it was made by kind of a VFXy person who's kind of a, like a, you know, a bit of a perfectionist. And so... It's funny if you watch it now, you'll just be like, "What?" But it was it was so like in, it was so zeitgeisty that suddenly, you know, I, I talked about going, you know, uh, putting out a video on YouTube and going out for the night and coming back and it'd have two or three million views. Like, you know, this was like ten million. I was like, "Whoa!" You know, it's still easily the most views, uh, most eyeballs that I've ever had on something. And suddenly, I just I, I sort of realized, man, I'm getting so many eyes on my YouTube channel right now. I don't think there's going to be a better time to release the short film. And so I, you know, called the people that, you know, also had spent a lot of time in, on the short. And, you know, the, the idea was always to release it on my YouTube channel, but I just wanted to say, I, you know, I called people, I was like, hey, I'm thinking I'm going to release it today. Is that okay with you? And everybody said, yep, yeah, cool. And so I just like kind of put it out and it accidentally, this Star Wars parody I did became this kind of amazing uh, promotional piece for the short film. And the short film like did get eyeballs on it. And it's, you know, it's sad, you know, millions of people watch it now. And not only that, it, uh, the following day, I got like a call from an American number and it was like, 
then became a week of like every production company, every agency, every studio called me, you know, and I was just living at my mom's house in, in, uh, in Newport in Hobson's <laughs> Bay. And it was this kind of like, wow, okay. So that was how I, uh, ultimately that, you know, over a few steps, it was that film coming out at that time, getting those eyeballs on it that attracted the attention of quote unquote Hollywood. Um, people that were calling me were saying, yeah, yeah, that film, it, it went around the town. Sometimes short films, they go around the town and everybody sees it and they all get excited. And, uh, and yeah, and, and that was, you know, the beginning of a, uh, I basically got called out to LA where all the, uh, the big agencies had, you know, were trying to, uh, seduce me to joining their, uh, ranks. And that's how I got, uh, represented by, uh, agents in, in the U S and, you know, got, you know, all in all the doors in, in Hollywood and stuff, including, uh, the door of uh, bad robot who had made that star Wars film whilst they were still editing it. So I got to go in there and kind of talk to those people. And this is a, uh, uh, you know, I said earlier on that I uh, am a self-taught visual effects guy, but that was, re- I mean, really it's internet taught. It just, just meant that I watched, you know, a lot of, I used my spare time to consume the free teachings on YouTube that incredibly generous people were putting out there. And my kind of uh, hero was this guy named Andrew Kramer, who, you know, put out all these uh, Adobe After Effects tutorials that really not only taught me how to make visual effects, but really inspired me to make my first ever thing because I saw his videos and went, oh my God, like filmmaking's way more possible than I thought. And during that trip, uh, I, you know, as I said, I went to Bad Robot where they were making Star Wars and I was kind of telling them how I kind of came mm. up and learned VFX. And I said, oh yeah, I learned from this guy named Andrew Kramer. And the person said, oh, Andrew, yeah, he works here. You want to go meet him? And he was upstairs, you know, doing visual effects on the Star Wars film. And I went and I got to meet him and I was like, uh, I was like, it, it was like meeting Elvis or something, which, which maybe paints me as the biggest loser of all time that like meeting <laughs> Elvis was meeting this uh, visual effects Did he YouTuber. live up to your expectations? He was, he was like really sweet. Yeah, no, we, we've kind of become our internet friends since we've met a few times. So yeah, he, he's, he's really great. And I remember that night I was in LA and I went to my hotel room and I was thinking about how I uh, met Andrew Kramer and I cried. Oh, that's lovely. Well, actually, I did like this isn't a planned question, but I did want to ask you about like at this point, you've had you've had a, a lot of strangers tell you that you're mm. good. Um, and, you know, this is a couple of years ago, so you've got a little bit of perspective on it. But how are you going in terms of navigating your own sense of what your art is and what your work is? and what is good about you as opposed to what your work is, or is it all just one big confusing jumble? I mean, it is a bit of a confusing jumble. I think it's really important to learn whose feedback you value. You know, of the of the numerous people that tell me what they think of my work or, or offer, you know, uh, notes or compliments, you know, I kind of have sort of like three or four core people that I really know what to think. Yeah. Up until this point, although you've been, you know, getting those views making those films, it's all been going really well. Who's paying for this? Like, how, You've been also working other jobs on the side, hey? Uh, sort point? of, but never any... Go, go, going back to, you know, my, my entry point to the industry was was kind of doing everything myself, more or less. You know, I was I was writing, I was shooting, I was directing, I was acting, I was doing the sound, I was doing the VFX, da-da-da-da-da. So um, when I say I've taken side jobs, my... Uh, you know, I, I was briefly, uh, you know, working in a music studio, writing songs for like ads and like, and you know, TV shows and that sort of thing. Um, but to me, that was still just filmmaking because, you know, that was so I could, you know, be composing for my own films and that sort of thing. Um, the kind of side gig I have, I mean, I've actually basically worked full time as a writer for the last few years um, in terms of what, mm. where I've been making the majority of my money. But the kind of side hustle that I've been doing is, you know, and directing as well, but the side hustle is uh, VFX work. 
So I'll do visual effects on, you know, it might not be my projects, but other people's projects. So, you know, to me, I still think of myself as a full-time filmmaker because I, I don't quite see that delineation. Mm. So you've, so people kind of started reaching out to you being like, oh, this guy's really good at visual effects. Maybe he can do visual effects on this thing and I'll pay. Yeah, definitely. Up until now, you've not gone to any funding bodies. You haven't applied for a single grant, which I think is really interesting as an artist living in Australia because a lot of our art is funded by various either Screen Victoria, Screen Australia, and if you're not a filmmaker, then there are other funding bodies for that. But this is the first time that Screen Australia, did they get in touch with you? Because you've had a few things supported through them um, from that point up until now. Yeah, so they, they got in touch with me, um, which I think is, is pretty rare and very fortunate because, again, I... You know, we live in a country that doesn't have the the scale of film industry as something like America. You know, which has a, a you know a a world famous suburb. Like that's pretty crazy. Uh, again, no offense, Newport. Mm. But like France mm. has one, India has one. You know, Japan has one. The UK, like there there are other uh, countries. Film with in- quite industries, you know, and, and, and we do too. But we have uh, sort of uh, government entities that uh, fund and support our film industries as do some of the countries you just uh, named uh, the UK certainly do I'm not sure about the others but um, mm. I actually got in touch uh, I got a call uh, or an email from Screen Australia saying hey we, we've seen your work and we actually have money available for making web series uh, you know under the multi con- the multi-platform funding branch and you know I'm still a, a you know in my early 20s I, I don't I never even looked into this because I just I, I've been such kind of an isolated sort of creator uh, you know, majoritively speaking, that I didn't even think that that was necessarily possible. And I suppose if this is about teaching, you know, up and coming artists, man, Screen Australia is there, like, and they they want you to get in touch, and and they exp- <laughs> they are inundated with applications, and and that shouldn't be something to be turned off from. It's very easy to apply for them. But they got in touch with me and said, hey, we you know we've seen your stuff, like it's it's good. We think you'd be a good candidate for this funding. If you have an idea, we'd love to see it. And so I then thought oh okay cool and, and i had this idea for this like comedy series about a, a wizard uh in the suburbs for sort of years i didn't really know what to do with it and and i thought oh i could apply for for that you know for some funding to make that and, and so I, I i you know got in touch with you know an, an old friend of mine who was a great writer uh, nicholas Issel, and we kind of you know broke out the story together and and you know worked with my the production company i was working with uh, late night films and yeah, I, I kind of you know wrote out a pitch and went into Screen Australia and pitched it to them, and they said, "Yeah, great, cool. You know, here's some money to make that that show." And um, in a way, that was something that was a little that was an amazing experience, but it was also a little hampering with the America stuff because I actually had just signed. So, uh, well, to clarify, so this ended up being a series called The Wizards of Oz, which is a uh, which was a six part uh, comedy series about a kind of Gandalf style wizard who got so fed up with having to fight dragons and goblins every day that he thought, screw this, I'm moving to Footscray. So he opens a portal from the kind of magical Middle Earth kingdom and tries to live a non magical existence within, you know, uh, Hobson's Bay. And uh, <laughs> and when I delivered the scripts to Screen Australia, they said, you you can't do this. It's too it was too ambitious for the budget they had available. The maximum budget at the time for multi-content, uh, multi-platform content was $350,000. And within the film industry, you know, when you're working entirely unfunded, when you're entirely, you know, a gorilla, you're not, there's no money, so you're not getting paid and nobody else needs to get paid and everybody can come kind of work for free, which is a lot of fun, but obviously you want to pay people. So when you get this grant from the government, you have to pay everybody properly, which is obviously mm. a good thing, but what seemed like more money than I could possibly fathom was absolutely not going to cover the series that Nick and I had written. 
you know, so they said, you know, you're not going to be able to do this. You have to pay everybody properly. And I sort of, you know, said like, but, you know, do I have to pay me properly? And they're like, no. And it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> Great. We, let's make the show. Because the, the show is, you know, filled with visual effects and, and filled with, with all these things. And so uh, everybody on the show got paid except for me and my producer, Chris Hocking, um, who also didn't get paid for some of his editing for like, you know, a lot of his post work. So, so essentially the way that it worked is on the Wizards of Oz, you know, everybody gets paid, but I... Uh, I co-wrote the show with Nick. I directed all the show. I played the lead actor in the show. I composed all the music. I uh, was in the edits and I did, you know, the bulk of the visual effects and I got paid a writer's fee and then the rest of it I, I did for free. So I, I invested my time and my money, you know, kind of as a, almost like as a producer or a financier mm. back into the show. Um, so then that was awesome because I mean, there were, you know, I, I actually ended up doing 36 weeks of unpaid post-production, wow. 36 weeks. And of those weeks, I took three days off. I took two days off for my brother's wedding and I took one day wow. off for my sister's wedding. And that was literally 36 weeks. And that's not something a lot of people can do, obviously. Like that's a real privilege because I was able to move, I, you know, move back into my mom's house and live rent free and, and, and uh, have a parent who had a spare room and was happy for me to just kind of be this vacant ghost for 36 weeks just like rotoscoping mm. around goblin blood uh you know for a whole year but that was going back to wanting to do work that's hard and ambitious that was the only way to make a series the series that i wanted to make which was something like impossibly technical and something that would turn heads because it wasn't like the other content i was being seen getting made uh, in australia and that was definitely, you know, an awesome thing. But it was a little bit of a uh, a millstone around my neck when it came to kind of the America thing. Because I'd, I'd agreed to do uh, Wizards of Oz just before I left to go to America to kind of uh, figure out which agency I wanted to go with. And as I went over there, there was lots of stuff like, oh, you know, you could work on this. We could start you on this kind of thing. And I was like, hold on, though. I have to go home and work <laughs> unpaid for a year to make a web show. I'll be in touch after that's finished. Um, so when it comes to striking whilst the iron is hot, I think that is, uh, the coldest iron I could, uh, like move I could possibly have made, but you know, so worth it because I got to make the show and not only that, uh, it, it did mm. turn heads. Like it, we actually ended up, it was funded as a web series, but, uh, before we even was, were in the editing process, kind of word got round to the industry, to people at SBS of the show that had been shot and every, you know, cause the crew that we were using were professional crews that kind of worked on stuff and, and they kind of thought, what is this thing? This sounds kind of weird and bizarre. And yeah, so I, I, I had a meeting with SBS with their commissioning comedy editor at the time. And, uh, he basically said, we'd, we'd like the show please. And so we kind of did a deal where it was funded as a web series, but it would be broadcast and premiere on SBS as an SBS comedy show over uh, three consecutive nights as a, instead of a six by 15 minutes for online, it was three 30 minutes for broadcast where then the rights went back to us for online distribution. So it ultimately went back onto the YouTube channel, which was the mm -hmm. agreement we had with screen Australia. So that was a really, uh, a really, uh, you know, I was really pleased with how all of that shook out. That, that was great. I oh, now want to talk about rebooted, which is your kind of latest mm -hmm. yeah. video film. thing, film, film that you've made. Um, I, I kind of want to talk about how maybe this is the most boring way to talk about this, but Screen Australia got onto you after um, Time Trap and that's how you made Wizards. How did you maintain that relationship? Because Screen Australia also has supported you in writing and, and creating in a way rebooted. How did you maintain that relationship with that funding body? Screen Australia, their job is to fund work and they want to fund good work and they want to fund work that finds an audience. 
And I guess I want to be arrogant enough and say, I think my work is, is of a high standard. And also it's had eyeballs on it. And, you know, I think Screen Australia, if you're looking at like multi-platform funding, I, I have actually now, one of the things that they do is they ask people who understand, you know, online uh, content, because multi-platform content is online content. Um, and, and they asked them if they wouldn't mind doing some external assessment for some of the uh, pitches that are sent through to Screen Australia. And I've actually done that a few times. And, you know, being on the other side of it, when you're assessing, like, you, you want to say yes. Like, that, that's their, their job is to fund things. And, and so when I, I, some of the assessments that I've seen have been great. And some of them have been, you know, surprisingly repetitious. You know, you see a lot of the same stuff. But also, if you're going to be putting money into it and, you know, to justify the existence and the budgets that are afforded to Screen Australia to allow to pass on to our artist community, it's a lot easier to, I mean, one of the big criteria is, is that what, what kind of what, basically what are the chances this is going to be seen? Because if, if you're asking for quite a lot of money to make a show, but you, even if you've proven that you've got like great scripts and you're a good filmmaker, if you're going to just dump it out on YouTube, it's essentially like throwing a message in a bottle into a sea of messages and bottles. Uh, how are you going to know that an audience is going to be is going to be found? And I have ha- mm. had, you know, fortunately, a track record of completely separated works that have all found audiences. And and so I think that uh, you know is is appealing to somebody like Screen Australia. But also, yeah, as said, I, I, I'll say I, I think my work is of, of a high quality, and I'm also pitching. Uh, ideas that are, yeah, un- unusual. You're currently, you're writing three different screenplays and they're all at different levels of development at the moment and they're fe- feature lengths. We've talked a lot about your interstellar trajectory and how you've had a lot of, um, you've kind of pinballed from one thing to the next and it's been a really wild and positive and fantastic ride up until now. But I do personally know that with every uh, success, there is a rejection. And I think that I, I just want to like get your thoughts around how you deal with rejection and how you keep going when you do encounter rejection. Yeah, that, absolutely. We should obviously talk about that stuff. I've, I've tried to get so many other things off the ground with different people and been you know, rejected you know, huge amounts of time. And it's devastating. Like it really is. And, and, and people, you know, want to put up a, a stiff upper lip and, you know, like I like I'm in a stage right now where I've been, you know, really happy with my creative output and I'm excited about what I've been working on and the opportunities that are coming. But there have been, you know, there was probably about a, a full year where I felt just like in the pits and it was it kind of the, the, uh, the impetus of that was a, was a rejection uh, of a project. And, and that really sent me into a spiral which is silly because, you know, it was just the rejection of, of one piece of work. But the thing about that that really stung was it was a uh, it was a thing that got really close. There's something about kind of getting close to something that makes you sort of feel the absence of it more when it doesn't happen. Okay, so the, my final question is, what is something you wish you knew when you first started out that you now know? Hmm. I think that, I guess, to not be jealous of, Never be jealous of other people working. Everybody's trying to work. It's good. The more people that work, the more people that get opportunities, the better for everybody. The better it is for the industry, the better it is for the community. And don't think because somebody else got a shot that they used up your shot. Well, thank you so much for talking to the Art and Industry Festival about the secrets of being an artist. Well, you're welcome, Laura. See you later. I'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening. Please feel free to check out the episode comments and find out more about our guests' past and future work. 
This podcast was produced by Laura Lethleen as a part of the Art Industry Festival 2020 on the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. As this is a series about people who make art and culture in Hobson's Bay, I want to recognise that cultural practice has occurred on these lands for over 60,000 years. I pay my respects to the elders of this land, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening. This always was, always will be Aboriginal land.